All right, so if you would, at this time, please open God's word with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke 2 probably contains the most familiar story that we find in the New Testament. It is the good news story about the incarnation of God's Son, or I'd put it this way, the incarnation of God's mercy and grace. This story that we're going to read here this morning reveals how God the Son took on flesh to rescue sinners historically, personally, mercifully, and powerfully. And I want to admit to you right up front that the Christmas narrative is difficult to preach. It's hard to preach. And and here's why. I believe that someone said this once, that familiarity often breeds contempt. And I'm sure you're familiar with this text. But I pray that that would never be said of a Christian when it comes to reading the narrative of the gospel. When we read this story, we are reading the narrative of our redemption. This this narrative, rather than make us have contempt toward the truth that we know so familiarly, this should rather utterly shock and amaze us every time we read this narrative. This is a miracle that we're reading about, given to us in God's word. It should amaze us when we come to it because this is what we celebrate at Christmas and sometimes we become so numb to that we forget the depth of what we are doing on Christmas morning when we give presents to one another. Because in this story, we have the greatest gift of all given to us by God himself. In the good news story of Christmas, we see four glorious Christ-exalting truths that we should celebrate every single day as Christians. I'm going to give you these four glorious truths to contemplate this morning. This Christmas story, this good news story, number one, reveals God's sovereignty over all human history. We see that in verses 1 to 5. And this story also reveals not only God's sovereignty over human history, it reveals God's sympathy for us personally in verses 6 and 7. And this story also reveals God's mercy to the unworthy. And we see that in verses 8 to 11. And finally, this story reveals to us God's glory powerfully in verses 12 to 20. That's what I want to look at this morning with you so we can exalt Jesus properly today as we anticipate celebrating with our families on Tuesday, but also so that we can celebrate Jesus every day because this story, this narrative, this good news is something that we as Christians rejoice in every moment of the day, every day, and should be thankful for it and sharing it the way in which we see it being shared here in this text with joy and boldness. Let's look at the first thing, though. In Luke 2, the first thing that we see in Luke 2 that's revealed to us is God's sovereign authority over human history. Okay, and and we're going to see that in verses one to five. And here we're going to learn that God sovereignly directs all the people in this story, all the events in this story. And he does so to reveal his prophetic, redemptive plan of mercy. Look with me at verses one to five this morning. Which says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered to census. 
This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, it's about a 90 mile trek here to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. I know you're familiar with this. We hear it on all the Peanuts cartoons, right? Every time it comes around this, this time of the year and we hear that on TV, we read it to our children. But do you see what's being revealed in this story? We're seeing the prophetic plan of God's mercy being revealed sovereignly here by God. He is orchestrating this entire thing. In verses 1 to 5, God, you've got, you got to understand that God is behind the scenes. He's moving the actors and the actions of all those involved in this. He's using even Caesar Augustus, a pagan ruler. And he's using him to bring about his redemptive plan for his people by bringing about this revelation of the prophecy that he gave in Micah 5, 2 to 5. That plan of redemption included even these details about how Joseph and Mary would come to Bethlehem and fulfill this prophecy that was given in Micah. Look with me there. Go to Jonah. You know where Jonah is. And then go to your right. Micah 5. We see this was the prophetic purpose and plan of God to bring about the redemption of his people, even through moving the most minute details in history and in people's lives to make this happen in such a way that it fulfills this prophecy perfectly. In 5.2, it says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler of. In Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This prophecy was given many, many years before Joseph and Mary headed off to Bethlehem by the decree of an evil king. Yet God was working all these things together to accomplish his purpose and his plan in redemption. And this is, to me, a very good thing to know. It's a very comforting thing to know when things don't seem to be going the way I want them to go in life. God is still at work moving in the lives of his people. And in this world, over all human history, he is at work bringing about whatever it takes to accomplish his predetermined purposes to bring about the glorious purpose of his salvation of his people. What this tells us in this Christmas story should remind us of this is that God rules. He reigns over the thoughts and the intentions and the actions of all men. And especially in this text that we're looking at this morning, we can see that he's doing all this to bring about his redemptive plan of mercy. We see it just beginning in Luke 2. We actually see this prophetic plan of redemption coming to fruition at the end of the Gospels and then into the book of Acts. 
It begins in Luke 2, and then, then in Acts chapter 2, we begin to hear it testified to very clearly by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. Go to Acts 2. This again is showing us the sovereign hand of God in moving people and plans of men to accomplish his redemptive purposes that he had predetermined before the foundation of the world to take place for the redemption of his people and the glorification of his name. In 2.22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite or determined plan and foreknowledge, the prearrangement of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible to hold him because he had no sin in him. He was our sin bearer, the one who was prophesied that would come in Micah, that came in Luke 2, that here is now being testified to by all those who had seen him. He is the one who fulfilled God's redemptive plan of mercy, bringing salvation to his people. I'm just, again, thankful for this. I'm thankful to know that this world is under God's reign. It's under God's control Even the events that seem to be catastrophic, even the evil rulers and dictators that rise up, even them must submit. They must submit to God's ultimate leadership, his sovereign decrees. I'm thankful to know that because sometimes it looks like it's not going that way. But when we look into the Bible, we begin to see everything is under God's power and authority. And nothing happens in this world apart from that. And he's working all these things together for the good of his people and the glory of his name. To me, it's good to know this. It's good for me to know that he will accomplish whatever and all that he is predetermined to do, even though it may seem impossible to me or to man. Just think about it for a second. Think about what he did. And be amazed by God's sovereign power. Just in Luke 2, what we see taking place and all the way into Acts 2. God predetermined that the virgin Mary would have a child. And carry that child to its completion in the fullness of time to reveal God's supernatural power over creation. And then God also predetermined in the same plan To raise up a pagan king who would actually call Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem for a census to reveal that God is the one who's ultimately in control. He has supreme authority over all things, including kings. And the same God who predetermined all that, it says in Acts 2, that he also predetermined that one day his son who came in Luke 2 would be delivered up to evil men to reveal not just his power and his authority, but his great mercy to sinners like us. This is the God we serve. This is the God of Christmas. This is the one who is to be exalted around that tree or in your home, around that table this Tuesday. The scriptures tell us this because God wants us to know that he has a predetermined plan to bring about his people's redemption and nothing in this world and no man can stop him. 
And that plan that he predetermined all hinges on one supreme man who was truly man and truly God, Jesus Christ, God incarnate in the flesh. Church, listen, Luke 2 reminds us of this. Every time you read the story, you should be reminded of this. Be reminded that the good news story of Christmas is that God will accomplish everything he promises historically and personally because our God is not a distant deity. He is imminent. He is near us. He came to us. He acts for us in time, in space, on this earth, then on a cross, then up from a grave. To intervene for us personally and to bring his people salvation and to bring himself praise. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. We also see in Luke, go back to Luke with me. We see how not only is God sovereign over all things in creation and all historical events in time, but how God acts personally to bring about this plan of redemption, this plan of mercy in verses 6 to 7. Secondly, in 6 and 7, we learn that God reveals his sympathy for us personally. He reveals his sympathy. He is not just a sovereign king. He is not just a sovereign ruler, creator, sustainer. He is also, as I said, eminent, meaning close, near. He acts personally for us to show us his sympathy for us. Look at verses 6 and 7. You can begin to see this. How he is going to interact very personally with us. He says, and while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Listen, we could not get any closer. We could not get any closer to the personal interaction of God with his people than in this birth. And she takes the son and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a feeding trough, a manger, because there is no place for them in the inn. Listen, the good news about Christ's incarnation here reveals that that. Jesus, God the Son, took upon himself flesh in the form of a babe, coming like us into this world, humanly. He took on flesh, though, to do something divine. He took on flesh to rescue sinners who can't rescue themselves. And this means that God himself personally intervened, not just in a sovereign way of controlling the minds and actions of men, but now sympathetically by coming to be like us and to experience this world with us and to tabernacle in our presence, pitch his tent, if you will. According to his his sovereign plan, in mercy, he did this. See, our God, our God is not just the one who is all controlling. He's all merciful and he's caring. And according to God's sovereign plan in history, we see how he comes to us personally in Jesus. Jesus Christ, the King of glory, sinless Son of God, the Lamb that would be slain, took on flesh. To sympathize with us through his humility. He took on flesh. He lost nothing. Truly God, truly man, lost nothing. But he restrained his 
power, his glory to become like us, to fulfill Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Here's how humble our God was in coming to us personally. He allowed himself to be despised and rejected by his creatures, by sinners, his creation. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is willfully. He chose this. He is as one from whom men hide their faces. They're ashamed of him because he doesn't look like any kind of king that you would want, much less even a friend or a leader of any type. He didn't look pleasing. He didn't act the way that they expected him to act. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Basically, we thought he was nothing. But then it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. There is no way for me to give you a comparison of this kind of humility. You can think of all the silly illustrations you can imagine. Like a human becoming an ant to go in and rescue these ants from their own doom. That doesn't cut it. Both are creatures. We're talking about the creator taking on flesh, humbling himself to be pummeled and to be punished and to be persecuted for our sake. And not striking every human dead in his presence because he could have and should have. But he comes in mercy to sympathize with us personally. This verse in Isaiah, these verses in Isaiah and Luke 2 remind us of this. It reminds us that Christ, Messiah, Jesus, he was born like us. He was born with nothing to boast in. He was born in poverty. He was sheltered in humility. He, he didn't live in a prestigious home. He came like every other human comes, poor and in need of help from his parents. There wasn't a celebration when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, we know that some celebrated later, and we'll get to that. But there wasn't the kind of celebration that we would expect for God to receive when he comes near there was no pomp and circumstance over his birth. Nothing that would announce that this is the king. He came as a babe. And he came to become the man of sorrows and the savior of sinners. And he came willfully. He came joyfully for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. In Luke, back in Luke 2, 6 and 7 you can see what he had. He had a poor family. That's what he had. He came in humility. And they recognize they're so broke that they have no hope of finding a place to stay. They can't find a place to rest in the inn. And they're looking for some place to go to. And, and you wonder at this. You think, oh, God, you know, you know, so many people teach that if you do the right things, if you honor God, if you, you obey his commands, if you follow all the rules, God will bless you. You'll ask somebody, how are they doing? Oh, I'm blessed. I got a new car. I got new stuff. Well, if anyone should have been blessed in that way, it should have been Mary. But she comes to display that that's not the way God blesses his people. He blesses us through the gift that is beyond any temporal blessing. The gift that will be eternally ours to rejoice in, to rest in. 
And the way he had to bring that to us was in humility. And so even in his birth, Jesus is expressing what would later be something we would categorize him as, as his work as a sympathetic high priest. He's coming to sympathize even with us. He's coming in humility. Hebrews 4, go there with me. Hebrews 4, verse 14 will help us. It tells us why he came in poverty, why he came in humility, why he emptied himself, if you will, of his glory to become our savior in 414 to 16. You're going to see here that God, it tells us basically this, that God took on flesh. Jesus took on flesh to feel the sorrow and griefs that we all feel in this sinful world. And he took this on willingly for us to become our sympathetic high priest. Verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus came in humility so that he could express his mercy. So he could express to us he knows what it's like when we're hurting. He knows what it's like to have a bad reputation. He did not have a noble birth. He had no noble standing. He was mocked. His parents were even ridiculed. He was even ridiculed for having been a child out of wedlock. And treated with ridicule over that so that he could sympathize with all of us in his birth, in his upbringing, in his death. He dies the way we die. He died the way we should have all died. And he does all this. He humbles himself this way to deliver us, though. That's what this tells us. And to deliver us personally, sympathetically. You don't have a God that you can go to and say, God, I know you don't understand what I'm going through right now. And, and I know it's hard for you to grasp how hard it is for me to live in this world. No, we have a God who knows exactly what it's like to be in this world. He knows exactly the sorrow that sin brings to this world. He saw it. He received punishment for it. He came to sympathize with us personally and to bring us to a place that we can come to his throne and find grace In the time of need, favor from God in the time of need, because he has humbled himself to become our substitute. To live for us the life we are commanded to live, to obtain for us the prize we could never earn. Reconciliation with God, intimacy with the father and the spirit, forgiveness of sins. But he had to come in humility to accomplish that. He had to come and live a righteous life because we are commanded to do so. So from birth to death to resurrection, he is our substitute and the source of our salvation. And the the Bible reveals to us that this incarnation, again, is not only an historic event that sovereignly directed by God himself. As you read this, you understand that the incarnation is also a sympathetic act of love displayed by God himself coming into this world, wrapped in humility to personally feel our pains and rescue the lowly, the sinner, 
Go back to Luke 2, 8 with me. I know when you read this account, it is, again, so familiar to you. And I just want today to maybe give you new eyes to look at it with, to help you see truths inside of this that should really cause you to rejoice and react in a way that exalts God in the highest. If you go back there in 2.8, and I'll read 8 to 12 in a second here, I'm going to give you the third point. The good news about Christ's incarnation reveals, thirdly, that God sovereignly and mercifully proclaims his mercy to the unworthy, to the lowly, to the spiritually helpless that need his grace. Look with me to see that illustrated in the lives of the shepherds in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel, that's, that's important, singular, pay attention to that. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Now, this, this angel didn't have glory in and of himself. Angels are nothing more than divine reflectors of the one who created them for this purpose, to reveal something about God, his majesty. They're messengers of God. He appears, the glory of the Lord shines, and the men are filled with fear. I think that's quite an underestimated statement. Um, Yeah, field, controlled by fear. I would be that way. And the angel said to them, fear not. Yeah, that's easy for him to say. But imagine this for just a second. A supernatural angelic being that's other than you shows up and it's in the middle of the night and the sky lights up and he speaks. They were afraid, not because of the angel, but because of who he reflected. He says, fear not. He's going to tell them, look, don't be afraid of me. I got something good for you. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign or the sign as it should be properly communicated there. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Here in this this passage, you're seeing God sovereignly and personally, if you will, through the angel, his messenger, mercifully proclaim something to the unworthy. In, In 8 to 12, you see this, that God mercifully chooses of all the people on the earth. He chooses the ones who are considered least worthy. That's good news. That's you and me, if you're a believer. And he chooses them for a very specific purpose in this text, which is also good news if you're a believer. You're in the same category. He mercifully, sovereignly chose these particular men, these unworthy shepherds, these Jewish shepherds out in the field at night. He chose them Not just to hear a message, but to be messengers. This is who he chose to be his first ambassadors. We're moving from this this testimony of the Savior's humble birth in a manger, all of a sudden to something spectacular, something, something divine, something glorious. 
in this announcement. Because in this announcement, what these shepherds are hearing is that the king of kings, your king, has been born this night. That would have been really good news for lowly shepherds. They didn't expect to hear about a king that loved them, that came for them, especially one who is divine. You've got to understand something about this context of who the shepherds are. In this time period, shepherds, unlike all of our little pictures that we hang up, which look like it's kind of a noble career, looks very you know, manly, you're out in the field guarding you know, against the, the lion and the wolf. Um, they did that, but it wasn't a noble position. At this time, shepherds were considered lower than nobodies in this culture. They were treated as the lowest of the low. And, and here's why, basically. Because of their duties, which required them to be with the sheep all the time, meaning they don't get to take a lot of baths, they don't go through ceremonial cleansing, they don't come to Sabbath, they're not obeying all the other tacked-on religious rites that the religious society had brought in, the Pharisees. And because of that, Everyone around them that looked outwardly righteous, that looked religiously right, looked down at these men as outcasts, as the unclean class of people. And after you've been told that you're unclean and you're a low life long enough, you start to believe it. You start to believe I'm not worthy of anybody's mercy. But then when the king of kings is announced, he says, I come for those kind of people who consider themselves lowly, who are contrite in spirit, broken over their sins, knowing their unworthiness. That's who I came for, not for the healthy, but for the sick. And so God announces it to those kind of people first. I find that very comforting because I'm one of those. And so are you. None of us are righteous. Not one of us are good on our own. Our righteousness comes from outside of us. Our goodness comes because of Christ in us. And the good news here that these men were hearing was the good news of God's mercy to sinners. He came for them. He didn't come for the kings. He didn't come for the spiritually elite. He came for those who were in need of his grace and his mercy. And that's such good news for us because we still know that he comes for the lowly, for the needy, for those in need of his mercy and his grace. Such people as us. So the next time you read the story, I hope you see this. I hope you see that it reveals this, this unbelievably good news to us, this eternally good news to us. That the Savior of sinners seeks out the unworthy And shows up to give them what they need in their time of need. According to God's redemptive plan that he predetermined before the foundation of the world. To bring us goodness and to bring him praise. I I really hope when you read the Christmas narrative that you are amazed by God's grace and mercy. I, I hope that the announcement that these sinners, these lowly shepherds hear, I hope it moves you. I hope it makes you feel awe inside. And I pray most of all that it makes all of us act the way they acted after hearing the gospel of their salvation. 
that God comes to the lowly and the needy and gives them not what they deserve, but what they cannot earn. He gives them favor. And I pray that the effect it had on them will have the same effect on you, that you will be moved in the same way they are moved. Look, look on down at 9 and 10. You start to see what amazed them and moved them here in this text. In verse 9, it says, as, as the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, they were filled with fear, with awe. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Great joy. This news should bring joy to those who know they are needy and need God's mercy. It should bring joy. And joy does something to you. If you go to a football game and your team wins, joy does something to you, does it not? I mean, unless you don't know anything about football like me, I just go, yay, okay, whoever. But if you like your team, you're jumping up and down, you're moving, you're proclaiming their glorious praise. That's what happens to these men when they hear the good news. The good news that for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now these men, they were lowly, but they weren't ignorant. Just think of the language that's used here in that text. It's biblical language. So the angel, by implication, is saying, you guys know this stuff. You know something here. You know something about this because I'm telling you in the city of David, they know something about the city of David and the prophecy about what would happen. And they know something about God because they say he is the savior who's coming. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. So these men may have been lowly, but they weren't ignorant, which tells me a lot. You can be informed. You can be one who's grown up in the church, but still find yourself at a point of recognizing I know about God, but I don't know him. And you need a supernatural revelation to open your eyes to see him. And they get that here. These, these men understood Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 7 that, that talked about how that God would come in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. God would come in the flesh. They knew about these things. He is the eternal father, the eternal protector who comes to us personally through a babe in a manger here. Look with me at Isaiah 7. These men knew this. This is what's going to absolutely amaze them. They know these things. They hear this proclamation, this announcement from the angels, and they are in awe. In 7.12 of Isaiah, it says, let me go down to 14, actually. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now look over in Isaiah 9, in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These men knew that when they heard verse 11 of Luke 2. They knew these things. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, the mighty God, the one who is the Messiah, the Lord. And what's great, look at verse 11 of chapter 2 in Luke. I love this, and it's so understated in the Greek or in the English translations, but you need to understand, unto you, that's big. 
This is big because it even talks about him coming for all the people, meaning not just Jews, but for those who are outside of the nation Israel, the Gentiles. But here in particular to these shepherds, these lowly men, when he says unto you, he didn't say unto Israel is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. But no, unto you, meaning even you who think you're not worthy, even you who know you're needy. He didn't come for the religiously upright. He came for those who are in need of his mercy. That's what's going on here, I think. And I think it's good news to them because they recognize what he's saying. Messiah, Savior, Lord. He's the one who's coming as God's anointed Savior, Jesus. Wait, you're saying he has arrived and he came for us? He came for us? What? This is astounding. These are men who had no hope. They're going to live out their life in this lowly manner, being tread upon by others, being despised, being hopeless. And now they have good news. The good news we celebrate at Christmas. This is good news for all sinners in all places for all time. And we need to be excited about it as Christians. I think these shepherds were excited about it. And I hope that we are this morning. Later on in verses 15 to 20, you're going to see how excited these guys were about this message they're hearing from the Lord through this angel. And I think we have something to learn from these men and how they are freshly amazed by God's mercy and how that should freshly amaze us and move us into action the way it moved them. But I think in verse 12, go back to Luke 2.12. I think in verse 12, angels are carrying out the work of the Lord, the supernatural message coming from God to these people. But angels are no fools either. They're very aware about how glorious this message is. They, they know that this is radical. They know this is something they don't under quite understand, but they know when they say it to men, it's going to blow them away. And I think that they understood that these men are going to be very excited when we give them this message. And so I got to be careful about how I'm going to give this message. I got to give it exactly the way God intended it to be given. So these men don't get confused. They're going to have to have a sign. They need a sign. To help them find their Savior and their Lord. Just think about it for a second. If they didn't have a sign, and it's the sign, this unique sign that the Messiah is going to be born by this woman they marry, betrothed to Joseph, and they're going to have the baby, and he's going to be in a manger in a feeding trough. And there were a lot of babies being born that night, I'm sure, in Bethlehem. But this one was very unique. Where he was at was unique, who he was was unique, whose parents were unique, circumstances were unique. And so he says to them, and this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And again, he he previously said, the one who's being born this day to you, for you, is a Savior who is a Messiah, who is Lord. Now, immediately without this sign, where would you start looking for Jesus? Maybe the synagogue. Maybe maybe outside the synagogue. Maybe they're going to have the baby near the synagogue. Maybe they're going to have the baby um, in a palace. Maybe he's going to be born to a king. 
And if it was either of those places, these men were without hope. They couldn't enter in. They couldn't go into a palace. They couldn't go into the synagogue. They were unclean. But what's God do? He gives them a sign, a humble sign. It's a sign that's rich in mercy. And he's given, giving it to them sympathetically because of their condition of where they're at. He said, here's the sign. Your king came in a manger. He came humbly to reach the lowly and to reveal my grace and mercy personally to those who can't come on their own. He came to them. I go back there in Luke and see what happens next in Luke 2, 13 and 14. Here we're going to see the fourth point that I have this morning. We see fourthly that the good news of Christ's incarnation revealed God's glory powerfully. I really like this section, okay? If I get excited, this will be when I get excited here. This is amazing. The incarnation of God the Son coming to earth, taking on flesh, wakes up heaven and earth that night. It is intense. And it is a display of the power of our God, the sovereign one, the personal one, the merciful one. Coming into this world to redeem his people. It will not go unnoticed when God acts upon this earth. When Christ comes again, the whole earth will know. The heavens will be rent. He will come in glory. It will be night when it happens. The darkness will be everywhere when Christ comes again. The whole world will bow before him. Either willfully or forcefully. But here He's saying, I come to give you peace so you can bow willfully. In verses 13 and 14, it says, and suddenly there was an angel with the angel, with that singular angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Those who have been favored, those who have been graced. In this passage, when you read verses 13 and 14. There's something magnificent happening. And I always use this dumb illustration when I look at this text and talk about it. But it's the only thing I have, okay? Um, If you like Star Wars, this will make sense to you, okay? Maybe Star Trek, too. Imagine you're flying along at normal speed. Then you have to jump to hyperspeed or to hyperspace or to whatever that's called, right? You jump. And all of a sudden, when it stops... Boom, you're there. This is what it's like. This angel is there speaking individually to these shepherds. And then in just less than we can even measure time, a host of angels appear beside him. Could you, could you, can you imagine it? I mean, can you, can you picture it in your mind? You're looking at one and you're afraid. And without blinking an eye... The sky is now full of the host of heaven, glorifying, magnifying God. And I believe singing. It doesn't say singing, but I think they're singing. And I think that's what's happening here. Look what it says in verse 13. And suddenly a host of angels appeared. Emphasis is suddenly. At the pronouncement of this message, the singular angel gave to these men. At the minute that he announced that. 
all of a sudden, all of heaven opened up with magnificent praise. The angels could not hold themselves back. They show up to echo the praise of God for giving this message to men. That's supposed to do something to us. This isn't written so that we can just go through it and look at it historically. If the angels get excited when this message is proclaimed, how much more excited should we be? Should we not be moved by this? Should not this announcement that shook heaven shake us into action? You guys have eternally good news. It is not to be held back. It is to be declared. That's why God gave you a mouth, gave you a mind, gave you eyes, gave you hands. Reveal this message to others. Look at verse 14 and see what I believe the heavenly hosts are singing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Highest glory belongs to God alone for what's taking place here. Because God has sent his son into this world to rescue the lowly, the unworthy. And he's came in that way personally to show you his mercy. God, the son personally shows up to bring us God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And he does this because he is good and he is sovereign. We don't serve a God who is only sovereign and not good. He has sympathy for us. He knows we are but dust. He knows we can't save ourselves. So he intervenes. He shows up. He shows up for those with whom he is pleased, referring to those whom he favors or graces. This is what caused the host of heaven to erupt in praise in this text. They are singing out. They are singing out because they are absolutely amazed that God has favored men by bringing them peace through the incarnate reconciling work of his son. This blows the angels away. And that message should blow us away. If this message amazes the angels, it should really amaze us if we stop and think about it. If we stop and think about how we've been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus, God the Son, taking our sins for us, it should cause us to be absolutely astounded and never take the gospel for granted or treat it as a familiar thing with contempt. And listen, you, you don't do that intentionally. But when you don't really contemplate it, you don't really ponder it, you don't really wonder at it, that's what you're doing unintentionally. If it doesn't change the way you live practically, you're treating it with contempt unintentionally, I'm sure. But when you think about what God has done, how he has intervened in time and in space personally to rescue us, I think you'll react the way the shepherds react there in 15 to 20. Look at that. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another. And look, this is the the first thing out of their mouth. They're gone. They're like, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, 
they made fully known or they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. These these shepherds, when they heard the gospel, the good news of their redemption through God, the son coming to rescue them. They could not keep quiet about the message. It says that they went out with haste. I believe they immediately and joyfully went into action. This is the way you become a faithful evangelist. Be amazed by God's revelation of his grace and act upon that amazement. Joy-driven evangelism. That's the greatest that there is. That'll cause you to do things you never thought you would do. But you're doing it because of the joy of declaring this good news. To glorify God, number one, and to rescue the hurting, number two. These men were excited because the long-expected Messiah had arrived and he came to show them mercy And what really amazed them was that this long-expected Messiah was not simply another Jew. He was none other than God himself in human flesh. That's why they don't hesitate to proclaim this. That's why they move with urgency. That that They moved with this hastily way because they had this urgent desire to tell others this good news. I hope that's the way you feel about it, too. They were moved by their internal joy. It's what made them bold witnesses. That's the hope that I have for us today as I preach this message. You'll hear this message afresh and be just as bold and just as joyful and just as worshipful. Not only today, but every day and Christmas Day. Because you've been chosen by God to be his ambassadors to carry out this message. To go tell others. Look how others reacted in verse 18. Look how they reacted to their joyfulness and their boldness and their praises. And they didn't worry. Are people going to think we're crazy? Well, maybe they did worry. We just don't have it in the text. But listen, they sounded crazy. I mean, look, you're you see these lowly shepherds show up in town telling you they just had a, a supernatural visitation from angels. That sounds pretty crazy. I mean, people did that today. I'd be like, eh, OK, let's go up to Norman. I think there's a place for you. But. They didn't worry about that. Why? Because the truth was greater than their own pride. The truth was greater than what other people thought of them. They feared God more than they feared man. Because of that, it says all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Wondered. This word wonder here speaks of awe. Astonishment. They were astonished. Shocked. Thrilled, maybe. And here's my question this morning. Are you still in awe of this message? Are you still shocked by this message of grace? That God would condescend to become like us. To take our place and rescue us from ourselves and from his wrath. I hope you are. I hope it still moves you toward a joy-driven obedience 
to be bold in your witness, to tell others around you so that they may wonder about Jesus. They may ponder the truths of Jesus that we proclaim in our message. No matter what they think about us, I pray that your joy over Jesus will be greater than your fear of man. Do you love him or not? Is he God or not? Is this good news or not? It's time to quit pretending. Either believe it and you live it and you tell it, Or quit talking about it. These men abandoned everything, if you will, to do this. They left their sheep. Because something was capturing their heart that was greater than their immediate needs. They've been given their eternal need. They've been given their reality of their neediness. And they've been given an answer to it in Christ. These men were in awe. And Mary and Joseph were also, I think, Thrilled and in awe over this good news, though Mary had many revelations of this herself at his birth, before his birth. But she's pondering these things in her heart. And what I want you to get is when the angel showed up in heaven singing and glorifying God and magnifying his name in the heavens, that was glorious. But it was intended to transform us to bring glory to God on earth the way these men did. To go into the world and proclaim this. Not simply repeat after me, but proclaim this with joy. Think about what you have been called to declare to the world as I conclude this morning. And I pray that as you think about this, you'll recognize that by doing this, God will receive glory not only in heaven, but here on earth. Because in this story that you are called to proclaim... You're talking about Jesus, God's son, God, the son's birth, his life, his death and his resurrection that brought you eternal redemption. You're you're talking about how God, the son came near, dwelt among us to rescue you and I personally, the lowly. You're telling this from personal conviction, from personal joy. You're saying to them around you that Jesus came To live a righteous life for us because we have all fallen short of the glory of God, fallen short of his perfection, fallen short of his law. And only Jesus, God, the son could come and fulfill all the righteous requirements of God as a man, as our substitute in our place. And then not only live and obey for us, but then humbly submit himself to a cross that we deserved. So that he would be suspended between heaven and earth, not only as our substitute, but as our sacrifice that would please God for us. Bring a sweet smelling aroma of praise to God, because there on that cross, the sinless son of God took upon himself, not just our humanity, but our shame, our sin. He took upon himself in the flesh. The punishment that we deserved, the eternal debt that we owe in the flesh and received the wrath of God, eternal wrath for all who believe upon him. He took their shame and he paid and satisfied God's requirements in full. And we owe nothing. Save praise and thanksgiving. And that's even because of Jesus. 
But that's not where the story of Christmas ends, is it? He certainly died for us. But the story continues. He rose for us. For our justification. He rose from the grave as our sin-conquering King and Savior to free us from sin's curse and this is the glorious part. I'm glad my sin is gone. I'm glad the debt that I owe is taken care of. But the greatest part of this is I've now, through Jesus, been reconciled to God. Personally, powerfully, sovereignly, historically, he moved on this earth to accomplish this. And he did that so that we can sing the song of the angels and the shepherds. So that we can sing glory to God in the highest for bringing us Peace through Jesus, his son. Think about this. Do you understand this? Do you grasp this? We who were once separated from God, deserving of his wrath. We are now not only allowed to, but commanded to and given the ability to sing his heavenly praise here on earth. How do we do that? By proclaiming the gospel to sinners. By proclaiming the gospel to weary saints. By magnifying the work of Jesus through our lives of obedience. Out of the joy and the thankfulness that we have for his sacrifice. That's what I pray that we'll do this Christmas and every day as God's mercy missionaries. So let's pray. Give thanks for that. Father, we thank you. You are the giver of all good things and the greatest of all things is Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for the life that you willfully lived and sacrificially gave to reconcile us to God our Father. We thank you for the glorious display of your power at the resurrection that declares that we have been declared righteous in God's sight based on your work. You, you were accepted on our behalf. You are our sacrifice, our substitute, our Savior. And through you, we have peace. We have been favored by God. And we will receive the rewards of your work forever. For that today we want to say glory be to God on earth and in heaven. I pray in Jesus name. Amen.